Hi, I'm Shiv. And I'm Chitra. We are the co-hosts of this show, Software People Stories. We are happy to bring you stories of people associated with software as makers or consumers. In every episode, we talk to people on their own personal and professional journeys, their interests and approach to work and life in a free-flowing conversational format. We hope that you will be able to draw your inspiration from their experiences and insights. These podcasts are made possible by PM Power Consulting, who have helped individuals, teams, and organizations on their delivery excellence journeys. Welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories. My guest today is Kumar Venkatramaya, who is a senior architect at a reputed financial telecommunications company. I've known Kumar for more than four decades, having studied together and also worked together initially. In this conversation, Kumar talks about the solid grounding that formal and structured training that can give and his initial work on probably one of the first globally successful product from India on becoming an architect and some stories about what crossover cables taught him. He talks also about making meetings effective through a practice of readouts and a good practice related to architectural governance. The cyclical nature of architectural models and approaches that are being taken and how approaches to architecture fit in with agile practices and what he finds as an effective tool for communication for architects which might probably surprise you, and whether an architect is an individual contributor or a team player. And he touches upon the attributes of an architect and what it takes for one to become a good architect. And while he claims that he has no hobbies and just enjoys his free time, he does have a lot of interest, which we couldn't cover in this conversation. Listen on. Hi, Kumar. Welcome to the Software People Stories, where uh, we talk about the experiences that people have had in their own personal journeys in the software space. So if you start by introducing yourself, we can then take it forward from there. Yeah, thanks, Shivaguru. Uh, thanks for giving me an opportunity. I am uh, Kumar uh, Venkataramaya. I started uh, in the software industry in uh, 1980. So after I graduated from my engineering, that was my first job on campus recruitment in uh, those days, what was called Tata Burroughs. And I went through different assignments in Tata Burroughs. The nice thing in Tata Burroughs that we had, which I realize many people in the current industry don't have, is really a solid two-month training. Because those days, I was an electrical engineer. So there is not a lot of computer science or computer information that we learned. So the training in Tata Burroughs was very nice for us to give a nice background. And then we had a project also to make sure that you know programming skills are practical. And after that, uh, went on different assignments. Uh, initially, doing COBOL programming with uh, you know DMS2 our database system in Unisys and a transaction processing system. So again, we learned a lot about transaction processing in that one. Then I went and did a 
system kind of programming where I had to do some uh, a system to take over uh, an application and monitor in case there are issues. So it's basically some kind of a, a monitor for applications. And then I did a variety of assignments in terms of you know writing a response to an RFP on begin on Unisys part of it. Again, I learned a little bit about you know how to articulate at a high level some of the features of the system. And then again, I did few product developments in Tata Burroughs. That was also nice in terms of us coming out with a few products. And one of them was a technology intensive product at that time, which was basically to scan signatures and then figure out some business use for that. Uh, in effect, we used it to call it sign bank and then we used it to sell it to the bank so that they can uh, you know, capture the signatures and then have electronic record of the signatures. It was one of the first early successful products from the Indian market. And then I did a consulting engagement with a company called Joseph & Kogan as part of Tata Burroughs. So it, it Again, gave me a good exposure to many different types of customers. Uh, I was basically a consultant on the networking side of Unisys called uh, Burroughs Network Architecture. So there I was able to learn, you know, the practical use cases as to how, why and customers use networks. And then, uh, of course, those days, there are a lot of things people are connecting via modems. And then IBM RJE protocol was very prominent. And in effect, they're trying to make sure that that works for all their applications. Very interesting because, of course, that was all before all the new web came up where now, you know, things are uh, much more simplified in terms of ability to exchange data. And then I went back to Tata Burroughs and then I was a manager for a few years for the network group. There again, we were able to recruit people and then obviously to place them, take some projects uh, and things like that, particularly on the Unix side and then as well as the Unix side. At that time, we started growing the Unix business. After that, I basically left Tata Burroughs and then joined uh, Swift in the US. And I've been with Swift now from 92, so that's uh, 27 years. I've done uh, different kinds of programming, a lot of it uh, initially all gall, and then I went through uh, design, project management, the manager for a uh, few teams, then back to technical work uh, in terms of, uh, you know, figuring out COTS products and evaluating them. Then again, back to design of applications and systems, and then a lot of work in performance benchmarks of our applications and our systems. And then currently, for the last three, four years, I've been an architect doing the architecture for various Swift products, worked a little bit on the big data side of it, big data and analytics, and also on our core applications, which are in effect message processing systems, but obviously for secure message processing. So that uh, in effect is a summary of my now you know 39 years in the industry yeah interesting kumar i remember the days when we started our training in tata Burroughs together trying to figure out how to get that i ate a cookie program <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah from that um, architecting huge environments like swift i would say probably it's much beyond a product or a platform because there are a lot of other parties also that need to work with and so on so the first curiosity question that I have is when you said you started with COBOL transaction processing and you also were working on a, an app for monitoring and was it also healing applications? 
Uh, it was basically for monitoring an application and then do an automatic takeover. So these are today done by service guard or uh, high availability monitors, etc. So it was a system level programming. We had to patch the operating system and then also what was called a network definition, which is the network part of it, so that we can do a heartbeat monitor via the network. And then you also need to take over the disks because you don't want the disks to get corrupted when you take over. So we had to patch the operating system to make sure that before it takes over the disk on the new system, the old system has given up the disks, etc. So those kind of things we had to write into that monitor. Mm. The application itself was a 911 system. This is for the Toronto Metropolis. So they were running a 911 system, but then uh, you know it was running on an active machine, and then there was a standby machine uh, where we were monitoring with the heartbeat and other mechanisms to make sure that the application is responding and then generating the right status. And then if that really did not work and the machine failed, for example, the heartbeat would fail, and then we had to write a script to, of course, make it generic so that uh, they can define what applications to start in what order, and then we would initiate the application in that sequence. That was uh, our application. Hmm. See, one uh, thing that I hear when I talk to people who've been involved in testing is that sometimes they say that, that they need to get into the minds of the programmer or the developer who wrote it to find out possible gaps and tests. So when you had to design something like this, did you have to go beyond just the code to understand how the components of the operating systems or like you mentioned, the disk subsystem and others work as to how they might have been designed or architected before you could come up with your solution? Uh, yes and no. Now, luckily, in that case, we did have a senior uh, person who knew the operating system quite well. So, in fact, when I say we passed, uh, I should say that he did most of the patching and he guided us. So, that is when we learned, indeed, the problem itself and how to fix it. So, as part of it, uh, of course, we would ask and we'd come with alternative solutions and he would explain why that would or that would not work. And secondly, indeed, when we started testing, obviously, sometimes you discover that uh, you know, the way you think the program worked is not exactly the way it worked because certain things that you expected to happen did not happen. And then you go and figure out uh, debug. Now, the important thing is to, of course, put enough trace statements so that you can figure out uh, where it went and uh, where it stopped or where it didn't work uh, properly. So basically, it's a combination of them. It was a very small team. So with three of us, and then we did all the things together. Basically, we did uh, the design, the coding, and the testing. Uh, and of course, we were, again, being a small team, we were able to talk to the customer directly, understand the requirements uh, and uh, code for that. So all of that is a small team. Okay. So did some of this help in your sign bank assignment where you had to build a product? Again, uh, all of that indeed helped because as part of that, we had to build a system that uh, you know, could uh, store messages, for example, and then we have to figure out that uh, if the system failed, how do we take over, etc. Now, the signback application itself was more of a application in the, for a small users, so it didn't have all the complexity. The primarily we were focusing on scanning the images, storing it in a database, and then providing uh, different uh, GUI access, etc. But we did have to consider high availability and then make sure that you know there is an alternate system available. But we didn't have to build a mechanism to automatically take over, things like that. So in that case, it turned out to be a different kind of a system from that one. But of course, that initial uh, knowledge helped because these days, of course, programmers are not 
coding up unless you work for a vendor directly those kind of uh, monitoring because they are available out of the box uh, hp had a product called service guard uh, that pretty much on all platforms which did similar things and then of course oracle has their own versions of the software all the all the, of course operating system vendors ibm and others have similar features now so in effect programmers are basically integrating them and then uh, testing them but i think knowing uh, how underneath things work and what kind of issues that the operating system has to encounter is definitely useful when i had to indicate again uh, you know give some tests for the people who are testing them as well as when we're doing uh, you know all kinds of performance and resiliency tests so that knowledge definitely helps in figuring out where the issues could be and indeed when we used um, some of these systems and swift with the vendor product the key thing is the applications were huge sometimes you have to acquire hundreds of disks and of course that takes a lot of time and over time you have to figure out how to optimize that because you don't want to take over time to be you know 10 10 plus minutes so i think knowing uh, how that works and then again when talking to the vendors of course you understand why that is the case and then you can suggest an alternative that works for the application to say that while yes they need to do certain things maybe the disk is not exactly corrupted and uh, how how they can go faster so it did help in identifying some solution that are uh, you know much faster mm. the other uh, point i noted was uh, in your uh, assignment as a bna consultant you said you got a lot of insights in terms of the practical applications mm-hmm. so are there any not necessarily funny any insights or anything that you learned uh, going with a certain assumption or certain experience and then finding that wow this is entirely different well working in networking and data com specifically you know is always challenging because it is not like pure software where uh, you know the problems are potentially reproducible or if not you can think through them and you have some log but the physical things it's always some issue a lot of times issues were with rs232 cable those days you know there is a way the specific uh, connections are there and there were two versions available one is a regular cable one is a reverse cable and a lot of times you know customers wouldn't know which one was which and then because when you connect to the modem you go one way when you don't connect to the modem and connect directly use a crossover cable so a few times that used to be a problem figuring out what the problem was and over time i figured out that and i used to carry a small device that would basically test the connectivity it was some 10 12 available in uh, what was it called uh, there was a company called black something i forget the name they would sell these equipment so i used to carry them so that i can quickly validate that the cable is right so working in hardware and data com is always an issue because sometimes it could simply be the length uh, you know is a little bit more than what is required or maybe there is some electrical disturbance so those kind of things that i had to figure out and solve on the other hand uh, the practical thing i learned was the importance of this file transfer you know it's such a trivial thing but for customers it's very important uh, because the, the one of the customers was a small customer so he had to basically dial out uh, with the devices and send various kinds of files they could be in voice files maybe they could be you know billing files and uh, you know payment files order files catalogs so you know they had to do hundreds of these kind of uh, dial out and uh, send i mean that's one where i realized rje of ibm was a very very uh, popular protocol and uh, so that was all a lot of manual work uh, you know that's i'm talking 30 35 years back of course these days there are many solutions available that to uh, enable of course dropbox and equal and things available makes it so much easier so that is where i learned that you know some of the high level technology is not all that 
uh, important. It's even the simple things like automating a dial-out or automating file transfers is uh, equally important for them to reduce, uh, you know, manual work. Hmm. So that brings me to you know, working in teams. You said for the uh, Toronto Police, you were a three-member team. And you also mentioned that now you deal with you know, huge applications and probably much larger teams, global teams and so on. What do you see are some of the challenges in scaling from a small team to a large team as an individual when you're a member of a small team versus member of a large team? Um, indeed, um, there are many challenges. And in particular, in Swift and in many companies now, uh, people are worldwide. Uh, the simplest thing is even to find a time that is suitable to all. And many times you cannot even find it because we have uh, operations in the US, Europe, and uh, Hong Kong and uh, Malaysia. So it's Always, always hard. Then you have to find a few people, you know, that can accommodate to one of the time zones. Uh, luckily, between US and uh, Europe, there is some uh, common time, right? The second aspect of that is also the people that we deal with have different backgrounds. Some of them are from IT and some of them are not from IT. Some of them have enough background about the application. So there is a lot of time that you need to set to, you know, brief each other. And since each of them come from a different background and a different perspective, uh, you need to make sure that, you know, they're all aligned in terms of the objectives and in terms of what the teams do. Because particularly with big teams, uh, many times you don't know what that specific person does in the team. It could be some other team. So again, you know, you try to understand and you say, yeah, that you you do this. You say, no, 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 this is not my team. They don't do it. It's my sister team. So now you're involved the sister team. So you know, many times uh, as people complain, uh, a lot of meetings you need to set up. And even more importantly, uh, before a meeting, you need prep meeting, sometimes uh, prep to prep meeting. A few times because if you invite people for a meeting, immediately they push back and say, what is this? this agenda is not clear and why are you inviting me? So, you know, you need to call them first uh, or at least chat with them and say that, well, I'm calling you for a meeting and this is the reason. Are you the right person? Uh, etc. So those uh, challenges uh, exist. Uh, luckily, the technology is helping now, you know, with uh, WebEx and other tools, uh, even getting rooms. I mean, about 25 years back, we had to go through admin to find even a common time uh, and find a room where you can meet. Uh, these days, a lot of that is automated. You go to a calendar, it can tell you, tell you where the conflicts are and automatically book a room for you. So definitely that has helped. But of course, there are the creative aspects still remain as to how you deal with people, uh, how you prep them. Uh, and in terms of, again, other thing that happens is in meetings, as always, uh, there is one person who wants to go into detail on one aspect or some other aspect. Uh, again, you need to manage uh, to the agenda and basically tell them, let's take it offline or, or you know, let's have a separate meeting for that. So I think those strategies help in making sure that, you know, 30 people always don't attend all the meetings and then waste uh, their effort. Yeah. So what about uh, the actual software development assets? At PM Power, we've been working with various organizations and teams in terms of uh, adopting more agile practices and definitely meetings, meeting time and what uh, teams consider as unproductive activities is something that uh, we do come across quite frequently. So what have you seen? as changes or challenges in working with you know, global teams, with large teams? So we are uh, going through an agile as we speak, although it's not very old. I think we are less than a year old in terms of getting into specific agile practices, although some teams did do Scrum and agile, uh, but now as a company-wide, we're going to that. What I 
here and what i learn is meetings are not going away in fact they have more meetings so at the end of it i think because as uh, more and more people are involved in creating a product or creating solutions uh, it's unavoidable that you need to talk to different set of people so per se i think you know meetings are unavoidable but the same strategy can be used for whether it is agile or anything which is as i said uh, really need to have a clear agenda and also making sure that is the person contributing to that or is it uh, simply that and then they're getting a background so the only way you can achieve all of that is to have many one on one meetings or you know, with a fewer people and then get to a point where you know if you require more people those people are then contributing to the overall agenda rather than uh, getting just simply a background of course there are meetings where you're presenting an idea so we call them readouts where if i send out a high level design document we know that a lot of people have other things to do you know i am working on my high level design but then they have 100 other things to do so their attention span you know at least they are not focused on this one so just sending out a document uh, then you know they don't have a content then we arrange these called read out meetings where it's simply going through the document and that is very educational because that is a point at which they realize that oh something is happening and then we point out that well you are doing this change and then you are involved in this change and or you know you are uh, going to be supporting this change so then it there is uh, open and many times when you're doing a design document the first question comes is why are we doing it etc so it does get to that point where you know they need you need to bring them up to speed but those are some of the strategies where you can focus the meetings uh, whether it is agile or regular uh, mechanism yeah now with agile there is this uh, misconception that you don't need to do architecture you just keep evolving as and when things are ready but on the other hand there is a need for at least governance of architecture and there should be an architecture at least norms that different components will comply with so that they can all work together they can be orchestrated clearly do you see that coming up as a challenge when an organization like swift is looking at agile adoption in a big way on the two aspects of it uh, i think obviously even if you want to do agile uh, you need an overall vision and an architecture as to at least the direction in which you're going and also the principles by which uh, you know you're developing your product and those principles are part of the architecture right for example some companies say you know what we just buy uh, open source products and uh, if an open source product does it it's good otherwise you know in theory if another product uh, can do it we're not going to go for that because that has other uh, proprietary issues right similarly custom development versus uh, using off the shelf uh, components so those are all uh, definitely part of architectural decisions uh, so we do have a board have an architectural review board as well as a technology evaluation committee so irrespective of whether you go through whichever process if you want to use a cards product then at least you need to go through because you need to make sure that the vendor you chose is fit for whatever your your goal is so if you are having a product and that product has to last 10 years and then you know you're going to distribute to many customers obviously you know the level of support you expect from your vendor is a lot different than if you're going to use a product uh, for test thing and then it's a throwaway product right so we do have those kind of criteria if you are basically using a product for uh, production usage we call it uh, or if you're packaging it and sending it to customers there is a different level of governance that you go through similarly in terms of reuse and in terms of overall technologies right whether you use a, a broker whether you use a pub sub mechanism those kind of things again are architectural decisions uh, the key point with agile is in fact if everyone does uh, everything from scratch or if basically go their own way it 
becomes even harder. So the benefit of Agile is where if you can start with uh, some components and some structure already and thereby meet customer demands, I think it's uh, a lot better. In fact, a part of the things that we need to always address are, uh, for example, security, performance, and resilience goals. So the way we try to address them is to come with standard platforms. There are two aspects. One is we learn from what we have done over the last 20 years. So we're not starting from scratch. So we know that you know, what products we require for, you know, to have a resilient configuration. Similarly, what kind of security they provide. So those become, you know, in effect baseline. And uh, of course, you also anticipate where the industry is going. And that is another area where architecture helps because we follow uh, what other companies are doing, where the products are headed, where the vendors are headed. Uh, Of course, we talk to consultants like Gartner and others to figure out uh, where the market is going. And architecture, again, does a lot of prep work. Sometimes we do proof of concepts and and uh, again, uh, talk to the vendors to precisely understand what they do. So that way we have uh, solutions ready for the teams to actually use because otherwise it would be much harder. Uh, The example I can give is again, in a big data world, uh, we wanted to do a lot of analytics work and big data. So they're talking to the vendors in terms of products that they have and talking to consultants and other customers as to what products they find, you know, and what products they think uh, are going to be coming up in the future. So that helps a lot in shaping our own architecture and direction. And also in cases where we can tell them that, you know what, this is what everyone is doing in the industry versus this is going to be something that you have to do unique. So all of that are part of the architecture. What is variable is specific design that you do, but even there, I think you need to have at least a vision as to where the product is headed. You can fill that vision with specifics. And then again, part of the architectural goal would be to say that, you know, I can replace parts of them without really replacing the entire thing. And the key thing that you have to consider is, of course, when you give it to customers and the field is littered with, uh, you know, your version one of the product, making them upgrade to the next version can't be so agile. That's one of the problems we always run into is because when, you know, we have uh, close to 5,000 plus customers, so there are certain products that are, you know, in the field, it's a lot harder to automatically change them every year. So we need to consider a little bit of where we are going in the future to make sure that, you know, we do as little as possible in the footprint, or at least, uh, you know, we have an ability to not mix up the business and the technical and the resiliency aspects together. Otherwise, it becomes much harder to replace them. Yeah, sounds like a huge responsibility on the architecture team to make sure that uh, the different pieces all end up run together. Indeed. Part of the thing is we do have a good chief architect, very practical, and then who has good experience in the industry. Obviously, an individual architect, we still have limitations in terms of depth and breadth. But collectively, you know, we can uh, learn from each other. And as I said, learning from other customers and industry conferences and vendors, and of course, reading up about them is always useful. And that is where using architectural principles that others have tried definitely helps. So we don't have to start from from scratch. In particular, uh, you know, security, and I think as I said, keep saying performance are two areas where we do play a lot of attention and a lot of our effort is spent in those areas because again, every programmer cannot be conversed with all aspects of of those. So there again, we have a a security policy team which gives us uh, the policies. And uh, then, as I said, we talk to the vendors to make sure that, you know, the products that we get at least support some uh, basic security principles that we have. Otherwise, we can 
simply eliminate the product. So obviously with some experience, you know, you get better and better at it. In fact, of some of the people in our company, I think I would say have really specialized in engaging the vendors and making sure that, you know, you go through their uh, marketing hype and we really talk to the, to the techies in the company, in the vendor community. And uh, again, at a certain point, even the vendors, you know, although the marketing folks are interested in selling, the, the techies, the actual developers, they want to make sure that, you know, when they sell the product, that it does meet our demands. Otherwise, they oversell and then they have to commit. So talking to the actual uh, CTO of a vendor company or the architects of the vendor company, uh, that is a great help to really understand, you know, what the technical features of the product are and the limitations and the use cases, right, again. And similarly, we talk to, we always ask for a reference and then we talk to the actual customers who share their view in terms of what the product does and what the product doesn't do. So those are always helpful. Uh, So over and above that, I think having, uh, you know, experience of 20 plus years always helps because things rarely change, you know. I mean, I go back to my 30-year career. We've gone through cycles, uh, you know, where we start with a fat server and a thin client and then we go to a fat client and a thin server and in between. So I see that trend coming back and again and again. So luckily, you know, having been been through some of them, right, we already know what aspects of it to consider when you go through each of those architectural frameworks. So that uh, definitely helps. And of course, having a specific requirement and those are the other aspects, uh, knowing a specific customer and a specific requirement instead of, uh, you know, coding and uh, developing a generic application is always helpful that then you can focus on solving the specific problem that uh, right now you have to deal with. Mm. So as a role, is being an architect more stressful than say being a developer or some other role? Um, I think uh, neither of these are specific to a role uh, because what I find uh, in our company and elsewhere is ultimately it is the individuals, some individuals in whichever role they get stressed a lot and others in other roles get stressed a lot. I mean, developers, obviously, the initially, you know, when you're a junior developer and others, there is a push from various people, management as well as others, and you yourself are motivated. So people work long hours and vice versa, right? If you're an architect, you're covering a broader area. Now, whether you work uh, extra, it all depends because in many cases, people push a problem back to the architect saying that architect has to solve. Now, in many cases, you have to you know, look up a lot of things, as I said, to study what others have done and dig into deep detail. Many times, you know, developers have specific views and saying that, well, this is how you do it in Oracle. So now you have to go back and question them to say that are there other ways to do it? Whether it is stressful, uh, as I said, simply depends on the individual. It's more, you know, personal interaction uh, and also the way you deal with them because, yes, a lot of programmers, for example, are very opinionated and they think there is only one way to do. As an architect, you may have to tell them uh, to consider other ways to do. So occasionally, as always, you know, it gets heated. So you do get into stressful situations or sometimes, you know, you say that this is the right way to do and people challenge that saying that, well, there is an old way to do, this is a better way. But I think it all depends on the, the individuals of uh, each of the roles. I think that is ultimately what determines uh, how much stress you have. Okay, so what would be your uh, advice or tips for someone who wants to be an architect? First of all, I think you do need a solid footing in uh, the few areas that 
matter, which is basically you need to be a developer. So you know practically that you can uh, you know code things. You do need to be have done some testing. Now, usually as a developer, you always do testing, but a little bit more exposure to testing helps because at least then you appreciate where things can go wrong and what the challenges in testing are. And design again is somewhat similar to architecture, but design focuses on one aspect of it to optimize an algorithm or to optimize query, et cetera, et cetera, whereas architecture looks into bigger scheme of things. I think those are uh, definitely helpful now as an architect. You do need to have logical thinking. You need to be a good uh, communicator so that you can articulate things well. The other aspect, as I said, uh, you do need to have a broad knowledge of uh, security, network, performance, and others, and databases. If you're coming up with a total solution. Now, if you're basically a database architect, obviously you can focus a lot on database. But even there, the high-level things are all tied. The technology that you use, for example, why is big data so prevalent now? Uh, Because uh, the performance equation changed for disk, for CPUs and memory, etc., etc., right? So as an architect, one has to be able to appreciate and understand those kind of things. In particular, performance is an abstract thing. So it is important to have an ability to abstract things and understand abstractions. And secondly, having an experience in performance testing, I think in my case at least, it helps a lot in figuring out what is the focus on where the right focus should be. Many times you want to do early tests and to do that, you need to identify what is the area where there could be uncertainty. And it is not a question of um, you know doing a test. It is really identifying where that could be and anticipating it. So that requires some experience and uh, some knowledge. Uh, for example, you know in one case we had to identify way ahead for using a solution where we're going to you know input and output records from an MQ store. Except that it was not a normal MQ. They had a synchronous replication spanning a country. So their latencies would have been much higher. And uh, we anticipated that that could pro- provide a problem with the throughput. So we did. Uh, very early test. In fact, talking about Agile, where people focus on MVP, one of the first things we did was a simple program. It less than 100 lines. You basically store messages in MQ, measure how, how long it takes, doesn't matter what message it is. And based on that, we could optimize various parameters. In particular, we figured out that we need to do batching when you do a commit on such topology. So I think as an architect, you need to have an appreciation for those kind of things. Similarly with security, because these days there are all places where there are uh, security holes. Uh, you need to have a right view to make sure that, you know, you first authenticate the user. And then once you authenticate the user, then only you can do other things, right? And then how to do that efficiently? Because, of course, every time authenticating a user using a public key encryption might be expensive. So basically, I think the architect needs to have knowledge of what are the right trade-offs between performance, uh, throughput, uh, you know, latencies, and uh, of course, uh, ability to program them uh, versus what is available off the shelf. Similarly with uh, security, I mean, one of the biggest things I still find is the internet email architecture, although it's been hugely successful, we know that uh, you know, in terms of security, it is very weak. You know, I send a message from A to B, there's no guarantee that it came from A. It can claim that it came from A. So obviously it works for internet to become very popular. But if you are doing uh, commercial secure messaging, uh, it is very, very important to make sure that uh, security is given a good uh, priority too. So in terms of agile and in terms of architecture, those need to be identified upfront as to, you know, basically what are the proof of concepts that you need to do? What are the uh, security things you need to basically not changeable? Uh, you know, it's uh, mandatory. Uh, and then you can work 
work around the remaining pieces. Mm, sounds very interesting, challenging, and I'm sure uh, somebody who's bored of doing other things cannot just say, oh, let me be an architect, unless one has a passion for this and has done work in all the areas. Indeed, there is a lot of communication that happens, I guess, a lot of times, maybe it's less than 10% of the time we're really solving a problem and 90% of the time, because you have to now communicate this PowerPoint is actually a much bigger vehicle for architects than anyone else, because you have to communicate to senior management, executive management, sometimes customers, uh, of course, other groups, security people, auditors and others. So there's a lot of uh, thing, but then you don't really show them the complete detailed uh, diagram as to what the program does. I mean, you cannot simply show code and say, well, this is what it does. So a lot of uh, time is spent in communication in effect. So if people basically are extremely unhappy with meetings or with Word documents or with PowerPoints, it's going to be a little bit harder to be an architect because obviously if they love doing things, you know, programming and uh, doing design, which is next level of, uh, you know, programming and figuring out and uh, doing basically on individual basis, that is fine. But uh, with an architect, I think that's more important thing is the teamwork. And as I said, it's very, very rare that one architect knows everything. I mean, as you come to our company, we have about a dozens of architects and each of us know certain area and uh, you do need to uh, work with other architects and, uh, you know, resolve any challenges between the two uh, in terms of opinions, in terms of direction, etc. So there is a lot of that non-productive work one can imagine. Mm, yeah, but uh, I found it interesting that you mentioned PowerPoint as a an effective communication tool. Because the other day I was reading an article on some of the business leaders, whether it is Jeff Bezos or Mark Cuban and others, who absolutely banned PowerPoints. Well, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe it does work uh, at their level. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at our level, when we are talking to uh, business folks, for example, or people who are not uh, totally IT, they simply need a very high level abstraction with whatever the system is doing. So, you know, PowerPoint is definitely effective. Now, every time you cannot go and wing it and then you can, you know, start with a whiteboard and start writing. The problem with that is then you cannot reuse them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we can see that, you know, we keep reusing an earlier uh, presentation, etc. So I think in terms of productivity, it helps. Uh, obviously, if you have to make the same pitch few times, and it is not the, never the same pitch because you make a pitch, then people have suggestions, then you modify them and then you have some other idea, you put them together and use some other pieces from some other people. Of course, it could be from uh, vendors, other products. So I'm not sure how companies that have banned PowerPoint do it because uh, at least uh, in our company, uh, it is not banned and it's extensively used pretty much. And uh, more and more, I find that for a long time back, we used to write high-level design documents and others as Word documents. Mm. Over time, what people have figured out is, uh, first of all, if it is purely Word and verbi- verbiage, it puts everyone to sleep. And that's one of the first things I heard even 20 years back when I started that was you need to put more pictures. And I'm not a natural picture thinker. I mean, I'm more a Word kind of a guy. So it did take me a while for me to get into that habit. But Amazingly, you know, there are people who can understand pictures a lot, a lot better and it conveys a lot as people expected. So, you know, you start putting it and these days many people have figured out that, you know what, anyway, I have to do PowerPoint. So they do PowerPoint, they take the slides and put it into a Word document because according to our standard, you know, some of the, the official documents have to be Word document and also Word document has better ability to do reviews and others. So a lot of people have now taken to putting a lot of things in PowerPoint, including 
some descriptions and others apart from pictures and then cutting and pasting them into Word documents. So both have uh, pluses and minuses, but you know, obviously a Word uh, explained, you know, it can put precise thinking and articulation better. On the other hand, uh, the again, PowerPoints are a vehicle to provide other documents. We have a real technical artifact like sequence diagrams and ER diagrams and data models and others, which are done through enterprise architect or other, other tools. Uh, Visio is a lot of uh, things again, right? Uh, but ultimately, uh, PowerPoint seems to be a vehicle to contain these kind of things. In fact, many, many times in Swift, at least I hear people saying that, uh, you know, even if you put a lot of things in email or some Word document, both of them are a turn off. They say that, well, when you put in PowerPoint. So I've seen people put one slide with basically five bullets. Okay. And that sometimes mm-hmm. is more uh, appreciated than uh, anything else, including uh, an email or any verbal description. Few times when we do, um, we're in the same room and we do whiteboarding and others, uh, immediate thing that uh, one does is, of course, you take a picture of that and then eventually it does go into another PowerPoint. So I don't see how people are doing without PowerPoint. And I guess it may work at a very executive level where just a question of thoughts and defending certain decisions and certain directions and basically what they call an elevator pitch. So for Bezos and other things, obviously, if you cannot convey something in two sentences saying that we should be doing X because of Y, I think there it works. But a lot of times it is not so straightforward where you do need to show, uh, particularly if you're talking about a technical architecture, a sequence diagram or a sequence of interactions. So I think their uh, PowerPoint is still quite good. Yeah, good to hear that. Because I also tend to be a little more visual, mainly in many of the training sessions and others. Uh, That way it gives you the flexibility to tune the messages based on the participants. Uh, instead of putting everything in words. Indeed, yeah. I mean, yeah, words, I tend to do that and people have advised to do more in pictures and I'm not a natural uh, visual thinker, but I do see after that, that once I go through that, it turns out that it is actually a good uh, idea because it can convey a lot more. Wonderful, Kumar. Uh, I didn't realize that I've been going on for uh, close to more than 45 minutes. Thanks a lot. I'm sure we, we will have an opportunity to talk again. Yeah, thank you, Shivaguru. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. If you like the show and would like to share your experiences with the community or know someone else who might want to do that, please get in touch with us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com. There is podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com. Please rate the show on Podchaser, Stitcher, iTunes, or any other podcast client that you find us on. Please also share our episodes with your friends and others in your network. If you or anyone you know would like to be featured on our show, do write to us at this email address, podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com.